0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: Welcome to the FT Election Countdown, your regular update on the UK's general election from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. As you have guessed, our politics podcast has now become the election countdown as we take you through the highs and lows as we head in towards the December the 12th poll. This is your little midweek update on what's been happening on the campaign trail. It's been a rather difficult time for the Labour Party, as Jeremy Corbyn once again has been mired in a racism controversy with a very big intervention from the UK's chief rabbi, plus a rather odd event to launch the party's race manifesto and further controversy over some leaked documents about the UK's trade deal with the US after we leave the EU. I'm delighted to be joined here in Parliament with George Parker, the FT's political editor, Jim Picard, our Chief Political Correspondent, and Laura Hughes, Political Correspondent. Thank you all for joining. So, Jim, let's begin by just looking at the past couple of days for Labour here, that they released their manifesto last week and began to see a little bit of pickup in the opinion polls there, that by a two or three points by some of the party was creeping upwards, which was welcome because there appeared to be no bounce at all. But things started to come off the rails a little bit from Tuesday this week, really. Yeah, let's wait to see whether this impacts the opinion
2: polls or not. But it's been a very eventful 24 hours which basically began with the chief rabbi warning that a new poison in Labour, sanctioned from the very top, had taken hold within the Labour Party. We also had other people piling in, including Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, saying that this unprecedented statement at this time ought to alert us to the deep sense of insecurity and fear felt by many British Jews. And we've been over this ground before. This is all about the anti-Semitism among certain left-wing particularly members of the Labour Party and Jeremy Corbyn was asked about this on his Andrew Neil grilling last night on the BBC and he was asked if he wants to apologise and four times he just dodged that question and started talking in more roundabout terms about how he is opposed to racism in all forms and quite a few people were not that impressed by that response. There was also something that Danny Finkelstein picked up on where Andrew Neil talked about Rothschild-type conspiracies and basically asked if they constituted anti-Semitism, and once again, Corbyn didn't say yes. He sort of talked in these sort of vague terms, and he's not stepping his foot down on this stuff. And the other thing that came out of the Andrew Neil interview, which I think is potentially electorally quite damaging, is that he's got two kind of financial rules which both unraveled in the same half-hour interview. The first rule was that last week's manifesto should be costed. As in 2017, all the numbers seemed to add up last week. £83 billion of tax rises for £83 billion of extra spending. And then suddenly on Sunday, we had this extra £58 quid for the WASPy women who lost out on their pensions. And... Jeremy Corbyn was asked how he was going to pay for it. And he said something about government reserves and then possibly some borrowing. And when reminded that government reserves were nowhere near the scale of money needed, he floundered. And I think it's a moment of acute danger for him because you can make loads of big public spending announcements if they are costed. When they're not, the public can get very suspicious. And then the second point was that he has always promised that people earning less than £80,000 a year wouldn't see their taxes go up under pressure from Mr Neil he did kind of admit that actually that wasn't really the case when you looked at things like the marriage allowance and when you looked at the new fiscal treatment of dividends under a Labour government and then this morning we can go into it in more detail in a bit he tried to get back on the front foot with a big dossier about how the Tories inverted commas want to sell the NHS to the Americans.
0: So let's unpack some of that, because as you said, it's been pretty eventful 24 hours. Laura Hughes, you went to this event in Tottenham where Labour was launching its race manifesto and was talking about how it's going to tackle racism in various forms. But as Jim said, the whole thing was overshadowed by the chief rabbi's article in The Times and the response to that. Now, of course, We've seen a lot of anti-Semitism stuff in Labour before. Mr Corbyn's been around this track many, many times, most infamously over the mural that was painted in his constituency that was full of anti-Semitic tropes and he didn't realise it was anti-Semitic and was questioning why it was to be removed and that was a whole that eventually led to Luciana Berger and many other Labour MPs quitting the party. Tell us about the event you went to and how Mr Corbyn dealt with those allegations from the Chief Rabbi.
3: I mean, the striking thing is, that when we arrived, there were these huge billboards outside the event that said, you know, a vote for Labour is a vote for racism. Labour is institutionally anti-Semitic. The setting was just really bad for Jeremy Corbyn. And then he was 45 minutes late. We were sat there listening to a whole bunch of women, very talented women singing. But it was sort of extraordinary, the optics of... This very lighthearted event and then the seriousness of what was going on and it felt from the inside as though they were struggling with how they were going to approach it. There was a suggestion we weren't going to get questions and they clearly rode back on that and realised that would look awful. But actually there were very few questions after the event which went on for hours and Corbyn just battered them away with the very same stock answer that he'd gave in his speech. He did have to address it, but crucially, he didn't specifically take on what the chief rabbi had said. And the point Jim made earlier, he keeps coming out and saying that he abhors racism in all forms. But when you say all forms, you're not engaging with the point, which is that... High-profile leaders in the Jewish community are making extraordinary claims on a very specific issue.
2: The Race and Faith document barely mentions anti-Semitism, right?
3: It was sort of fascinating that the party chose to have this manifesto launched, knowing that they have such a huge problem within the Labour Party. And that's why the rabbi chose to time his intervention when he did. I don't know. They boasted up on stage about the fact they had this document, but I don't know why they even put it out when they weren't willing to take on the number one issue of the day.
2: The only other thing I would add to this, though, is that there was a poll in the Times this morning asking, voters whether they thought Boris Johnson and and Jeremy Corbyn both had issues in this respect and it was something along the lines of 30% of voters thought Jeremy Corbyn's anti-Semitic and about 30% of voters think that Boris Johnson is a racist
0: so there are issues for the Tories as well. George Parker, what do you make of the Chief Rabbi's intervention here? Because that really teed up this Andrew Neil interview, which Jim mentioned earlier, which was really just the most extraordinary half an hour of television and these grillings where the veteran BBC presenter sits down and goes through huge amounts of policy detail and everyone who's done them so far, Jeremy Corbyn, Nicola Sturgeon, have become unstuck. But Mr Corbyn's appearance there really made this whole thing an awful lot worse.
1: Yes. Well, I mean, the chief rabbi's intervention basically has dominated this week of the campaign. And from Boris Johnson's point of view, you just stand back and enjoy the show. Yeah, of course, to see Boris Johnson in the Andrew Neil hot seat, I'm sure he'll be putting a lot of preparation into that. That's going to be a real trial for him. But certainly the Andrew Neill interrogation of Jeremy Corbyn was painful viewing. You know, all the headlines the next day were full of the usual stuff about car crash interviews and. It was terrible. I mean, there's only one answer to the anti-Semitism question, which is you make a full and frank apology. The crazy thing about Jeremy Corbyn's performance in that interview is that he has previously apologised for this and for the way the Labour Party's handled it. All you say is, look, we've made mistakes. Anti-Semitism's abhorrent. I want to rebuild trust with the community and I'm sorry. You close it down at that point. And the fact he refused to do it was terrible. And then, of course, it went on to the whole question about the economic credibility of the Labour Party, the moral values of the Labour Party. Why are they finding all this money for Women approaching state retirement age or beyond when they haven't got money to reverse benefit cuts, for example. What's the logic in that? And then, on to the apparently trivial, but something which I think really resonates with particularly Labour voters, which is. Imagine yourself as prime minister, special forces have got some leading terrorist in their gun sites. What do you do? And he sort of says, well, maybe we try and arrest him. And it it just doesn't stack up. And, you know, it's been a terrible week for Jeremy Corbyn.
0: And when you looked at that interview before it had even been broadcast, there was a whole bunch of leaked messages from Jeremy Corbyn supporters who said that, Jeremy's done this interview. It's dreadful. Flood the hashtags with positive messages to try and distract from that, which does suggest that even people around the Labour leader, Jim, acknowledge that it probably could have gone a bit better.
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was very hard work. He came unstuck on various details. I was away with the fairies for a second then, just sort of thinking about this issue of whether he would launch attacks on terrorists and that kind of thing. It obviously doesn't look very prime ministerial when you're not prepared to press the button and when you wouldn't move swiftly to protect British citizens. I do think Corbyn does get some public sympathy, though, from his desire not to rush into wars. People are very familiar with what happened with the Iraq invasion, however many years ago that was, and the repercussions for that in terms of security in the Middle East and elsewhere. So I don't think we should dismiss as the kind of lentil-munching musings of a total hippie when he says this stuff. There is stuff to think about in it.
0: Does it look prime ministerial, though, in the heat of an election? Probably not. And the other thing, Laura, as well, that I think has sort of resonated with people as well, particularly over, as George was saying, this lack of apology, is a sort of belligerence from Mr Corbyn on this, that... As has been said, he has apologised for this before. And Richard Bergen, the Shadow Justice Secretary, who's a key ally of Mr Corbyn, was out on the broadcast rounds this morning saying, look, we are sorry, we should have handled this better. And Jeremy has apologised before. It just raised this question of why didn't he just do that last night when there were three million people watching?
3: This is the point, and this is what really struck me yesterday, seeing him in person and then seeing him later do this interview Even if you weren't up to every controversy that the party's been going through on this issue over the last few years, just watching him, he felt really belligerent. He felt really uncomfortable and on the defensive. Instead of reaching out, he chose to sort of retreat Internally, And when he stood up and said that he'd encourage Jewish leaders to engage with him, that massively backfired because leaders were coming out yesterday and saying that there have been promise of talks for years and they just haven't happened, that Corbyn hasn't been willing to meet with them. So that's why it just looked really bad. And his tone was awful. And he looked aggressive in that Andrew Neil interview when really he needs to be doing the absolute opposite. And I can't really understand why he was advised to do what he did or why he chose not to come out and apologise. It was the tone of it. Even if you didn't understand every detail of what happened yesterday, you would have just watched him and you'd see the headlines and the refusal to apologise and you wouldn't understand why.
2: And I think this whole offer to talk to people is very familiar to those who've been watching Jeremy Corbyn over the decades that his manner is all About dialogue. He talks a very good game about one should have dialogue with both sides of every controversial issue. But those who have watched him for a long time know that during the Troubles in Northern Ireland, he was only talking to one side. There are no records of him talking to Unionists during the Northern Ireland Troubles. And likewise, when it comes to Israel Palestine, was he talking to the Israeli side? Quite obviously not. He was only talking to the side that he naturally sympathises with.
0: And of course, during the troubles as well, it's been pointed out that he spoke a lot to senior IRA figures like Gerry Adams and Martin McGuinness, but didn't engage with peaceful unionists such as the SDLP during that point, which is a question he's never really been able Mm. to answer. Now, after all that, George, Labour desperately tried to get back on the front foot with a leaked dossier this morning. Some government minutes of meetings about a trade deal with the US. They had this press conference first thing on Wednesday morning. What did you make of what they had to say about a future trade deal? Well,
1: it's a document which has been knocking around for a while. And in fact, Jeremy Corbyn brandished a redacted version of this document a while back. And certainly the impression has been allowed to gather quite successfully from a Labour point of view, which is that there are secret talks going on behind the scenes. It was work done by Channel 4 dispatches originally that exposed this, where the health service was discussed by British trade officials in the context of a US trade deal. And in fact, it's been one of the most successful attack lines of Jeremy Corbyn in this campaign. The fact he's managed to turn the Brexit question into a question about the future trade deal and the possibility that the NHS is up for sale and up for grabs from a rapacious Trump. And the fact that Donald Trump is coming to Britain next week for a NATO summit is something which is causing palpitations at conservative campaign headquarters. Because the last thing they want is Donald Trump coming along and basically endorsing Boris Johnson in any way, or given the impression that Boris Johnson is in his pocket in some way. So you can see why Jeremy Corbyn wants to go back on the front foot on this. He's released a very lengthy document. Jim was there. I think it's about 450 pages long. Frankly, Jim may have a better view of this. It doesn't seem to me that there's the smoking gun there, which really proves that British government ministers were approving the idea that the NHS was in some way on the table in negotiations and therefore open to higher drug pricing by US pharma.
0: So when you dig through the details of this, Jim, you know, the NHS is mentioned four times in all these leaked documents and you've been through this sort of passing references to chlorinated chicken, food warning labels, that sort of thing there. But to ordinary punters, you might hear a bit about this. It still might sound a bit dangerous. It might still sound as if the NHS might be on the table and even just a little scintilla of evidence of that could be an effective attack line against the Tories. Exactly. So that
2: it felt like a kind of gotcha moment when he stood up brandishing these documents that he could barely lift with his, his spindly arms. And for a second, it was certainly very good theatre. You know, if this was Labour trying to change the subject, it has definitely worked at least for a few hours. But as you say, Seb, once you started going through the documents and looking at the bits that Labour had highlighted, and did it change our existing understanding of what the US is seeking from these trade talks? You know, we know that they want greater access for healthcare pharmaceutical companies to the NHS. We know that they want to flog chlorinated chicken to our children, whether you like the sound of that or not. But the point is, what they want is very different to what we'll give them. And Laura Koonsberg of the BBC asked the most intelligent question, which was, do you have any evidence that UK ministers are complicit with these desires? Any evidence that the British government does actually want to go along with this? And to that Jeremy Corbyn could not really provide any answer other than to say, well, these talks were sanctioned by ministers and they were at official level, but surely ministers knew about this. But as you were referring to earlier, the reason this has political salience is because we are in an age where you can put 350 million quid on a bus and it may or may not be true, but when people debate it, you get some cut through. And we saw this a couple of weeks ago when Labour made the totally fanciful claim that the US-UK trade deal would lead to medicines in the NHS Going up in cost by 500 million quid a week, which is basically the pretend number you get to if you presume that every medicine in Britain is charged at the same price as it would be in the US, which is obviously nonsense and no expert seriously thinks that that's a remotely central assumption to be a consequence of these talks. But people talking about it and people seeing Corbyn saying this stuff could potentially
0: swear a few votes and that's what they're hoping for. So let's just touch on the other party we haven't mentioned, George and Laura, which is the Conservatives. And very briefly, they launched their manifesto, which was a very brief document itself in a very misty Telford on Sunday, a key marginal seat there. And if Labour was being fantastically ambitious with its document, George, then the Tories were being the complete opposite.
1: Well, it's funny, actually, I'd almost forgotten about the Tory manifesto launch that we went to in Telford, Seb, which is probably mission accomplished as far as the Tories are concerned. There was a very wise words from Joe Johnson, Boris Johnson's brother, who wrote the 2015 Tory manifesto. He said, if people are still talking about it 48 hours later, you've got a problem. And I think people would stop talking about the Tory manifesto 24 hours later. And it was noticeable I thought that the Tories fielded Nicky Morgan who's a cabinet minister who's leaving parliament to talk about the manifesto the next day it was a determined effort to close it down it was a modest safety first document it didn't really provide much of a long-term vision for the country but it achieved its purpose which was to sort of remove all the kind of things that could blow up in your face which obviously happened in 2017 with a few retail offers that work reasonably well on the doorstep, whether it's filling in postholes or removing some hospital car parking charges or providing more nurses. The Tories would argue that the radical bit of the manifesto is Brexit. And how much more do you want? And Laura, when you look at that
0: document there, it was very much pledges we've heard over and over again over the past couple of months, get Brexit done, 20,000 new police officers, an Australian-style points-based system. They did chuck in in two crucial new things, though. One was... 50,000 new nurses. Now, that necessarily may not be net because obviously people will be leaving the health service in that point and people have pulled apart that figure. And the second thing was saying that we will not extend the transition period beyond December 2020. So that essentially means that if there's no trade deal within the next 12 months, then we're leaving without a deal in 12 months' time.
3: Yeah, and that would have been welcome news to the likes of Nigel Farage, who have made it very clear that they don't want to see that extended But also, it could backfire in some ways because you've got the Liberal Democrats arguing that there is no guarantee we still don't end up crashing out the EU without a trade deal. And that cast iron guarantee in there could actually be a problem for the Prime Minister, who has given himself a very small amount of time to do a very big trade deal. And he could come to regret that. But perhaps he felt it was necessary at this point in the campaign to have that hard line. There was also no real mention of a no deal Brexit in there. And tactically I think that's because there are a number of Tory Remainers who might be flirting with the Lib Dems that would have been very nervous if they'd seen that in there. So It was a bit of a balancing act, but I actually think he might come to regret putting that down in writing.
0: And that's it for your mini election update. And we have some big news coming on Wednesday night, which will be YouGov's comprehensive breakdown of the electorate and how the race is currently shaping up. We'll be back on Saturday morning with analysis of that and more from the rest of this week's campaign. Thank you very much to George, Jim and Law for joining. If you'd like to see more FT election coverage, then we have our daily election live blog, as well as much, much more on FT.com, where you can find our latest subscription offers. FT Election Countdown was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder. Until Saturday, thanks for listening.